Do you consider yourself a high achiever? Smart, driven, highly successful? I am so excited to have you. My name is Julia Arndt and I'm the host of the Stress Podcast. I will help you develop your stress resilience the same way you've developed your workplace superpowers. Learn peak performance tools to thrive at work and in your personal life. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome back to Stress. I'm super, super excited to welcome our next podcast guest to the show, and it's Alessandra Wall. Hi, how are you today? Um, I am good. I'm a little bit stressed, so this is perfect, right? It's been running around all day long, so this is, okay. this is great. Great. Well, I hope that this podcast interview will help you to relax a little bit because we are hopefully going to talk about things that will yeah, slow you down um, because that's exactly what I want to talk with you about. But before we get into all of these things, <laughs> is um, the first question I always ask my guests is, um, where are you? What time zone are you in? And what have you been up to this morning? I am in San Diego, California. So we're Pacific time zone right now. And so far this morning, I've had a conversation with an incredible female professional about gaining visibility. I have uh, co-chaired a meeting on male allyship. And, and now I'm here with you. Amidst oh. also getting my kids off to school and starting my own day and responding to a billion emails. So just like everybody else, <laughs> running around. Great. Uh, visibility in terms of business or in terms of uh, female leadership or what was the conversation about? That sounds really interesting. All of the above. So okay. uh, visibility in terms of kind of knowing what you bring to the table, feeling comfortable talking about it, understanding how to build your brand, and then making sure that you uh, can articulate all those things in a way that gets you the kind of career that actually makes you happy as opposed to just building success that makes you miserable. Mm -hmm. Nice. And so why do you think you feel stressed right now? I literally have just been running. It's just one of those mornings. That was a coffee meeting and I have made the mistake I know better of <laughs> scheduling things back to back to back. It's the end of the year and, uh, and, Everybody wants to get in before the holidays. So that was a coffee meeting to then jump onto a Zoom meeting. And I wanted to be in the office for our conversation. I really wanted things to be quiet and peaceful uh, for this. So that's, that's mostly it, as opposed to just starting the day in a single space. I've been in three spaces so far. Mm. I appreciate the honesty because I think it's beautiful to see that even as us professionals know, sh like knowing what exactly we need to do in order to not be super stressed, um, we still experience it, of course, and we still make mistakes as well in our scheduling and in our time management. So, um, and I know that you've been uh, um, sick as well last week, so I'm sure that things are just piling up a little bit more as well. Um, so Alessandra, tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do. I, who am I? I, I am many things. I'm a, I'm a mom. I'm a professional woman. I'm a business owner. I hear your accent. So I have to throw it out because it's not present in my voice. I am half French and part Italian and raised there. I only came to the States when I was 17. I'm also, or 18, excuse me. I'm also half American. That's in there too. Um, I spend my days at this point helping women, helping women build success that works for them and helping companies hold on to those women. And I would say that I've spent the vast majority of my career. So I started off as a clinical psychologist. That is my, that is my educational background. That was the first decade of my career was nearly entirely just being a therapist who specialized mm -hmm. in a lot of things. I started with children and then I had my own children and then it felt like doing overtime <laughs> So then I just refocused on adults and with adults, my area of specialty is anxiety and stress management. And now that the word is ubiquitous burnout mm -hmm. um, and through that work started working with women specifically who were either not moving in their careers or gaining a lot of success, but really, really just killing themselves in the process. That idea of being a workhorse. Mm -hmm. Right. So showing up, always raising your hand, always saying yes. And yeah, you're successful, but not as successful as you should be. And you're exhausting yourself in the process of doing that. Um, 
So that's been the transition for my career. I have an executive coaching business right now, a consulting business, and I do training all around that. And I love what I do. I'm very, very fortunate that even if I stand here today, slightly stressed with a little bit of a headache, um, looking at a crazy schedule between now and January 1st, it is at least doing things that I genuinely love and building something that I love. So uh, we're going to be talking about something today, which helped me get to this place and might surprise some people. But um, my big piece is getting people to slow down and make choices that work for them. I did it as a psychologist and I do it now again. Um, And that is really how my journey got me from being a child psychologist to working with corporate women and and big companies in STEM and tech right now. Yeah. So fascinating. Okay. I have a million questions. (laughs) And number one, where in France did you grow up? Right outside of Paris. Okay. Nice. So near, uh, if anybody's from like not too far from Versailles, not too far from Saint-Germain-en-Laye, right outside of Paris. Okay, very cool. Yeah, I am from Germany and uh, I lived in France for three years in Marseille. So um, we have nice. in common, I guess, from a French perspective, but not, not Paris, but Marseille. Nice. Um, what do you think are the biggest reasons why women are, you know, going into this, you know, into this rut of saying yes to everything and always trying to... Uh, um, Uh, prove themselves and prove their prove their worth of um, you know of being who they are through through their work I actually think there are a couple reasons so I will start with there's just societal reasons Um, somebody asked me this question one of the first times they gave an official corporate talk and I stopped I'm like I don't know and so Mm -hmm. let's just start as women it's okay to say I don't know when you know something but then I stopped and thought about it for a second And I think part of it is for women to access a lot of the positions that we have nowadays, we had to fight, right? Mm -hmm. We had to prove not just that we were as good, but really that we were better than the men who were doing it. And I know I'm going back in history, but just think about the first woman lawyer, the first female physician, the first female surgeon. She didn't come into that place just being able to say, I can get the same grades, I can do things. In order to fight through it and earn respect from her male counterpart, she had to prove that She had to demonstrate that she was better. The bar was higher. And I think somewhere that's baked now into how we show up and it's still present. So I mentioned I work very heavily with women in STEM. So, you know, science, technology, engineering, uh, medicine, and we still see a lot of that women who are coming in with like excellent technical skills, excellent coding skills. But to be heard, to be taken seriously, we really have to work harder, speak louder, demonstrate more knowledge. I think part of it has to do with just inherent biases that are present. And this is not a male versus female thing. Women are just as bad as men in terms of bias towards other women. So, you know, um, men will say something and will take it at face value. Women say something and women and men alike ask for proof, right? So all of that contributes to us working harder. I think the other piece is how we're socialized by our parents. So I don't know about you, but when I grew up, my mom is a first-generation French Italian immigrants uh, to France who moved to France between uh, World War One and World War Two, and um, there's a lot of having to prove yourself that goes with that. And every time I'd leave the house, my mom would say, "Alessandra, remember, behave like a lady." Right, and I guarantee she would not say, "Christopher." Remember, behave like a gentleman, right? So there's a lot of things that parents do when I use that example that they don't mean to do. They want us to be liked. They want us to be good human beings and good citizens. They want us to do things that they know will make us more accepted. And for girls, a lot of that is being helpful and showing up and being collaborative and putting other people's needs first. And we we hold on to that even as adult women. So we're constantly like, I can do it. Okay, I can do it. Sure, I'll take it on. It's exhausting. It doesn't work for us. And to be honest, it actually doesn't work for anybody else we're showing up for because eventually we become resentful or we burn out and then we can't show up at all. Mm -hmm. Thus the she session, right? Yeah. 
I actually love that you say we become resentful. I think that's something that we don't talk enough about because yeah, we just burn out and we don't really know how to manage it. But that feeling of resentment, that is really powerful, I think, actually, and um, and really hurtful for the people that surround us. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, so I think that's really important to mention. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so any other, I'm curious, are there any other psychological reasons? Why or do you think those are the two, two big ones? I really think those are the big ones. I mean, I would argue, since this is what I do, that part of it is also it has to do with what I was saying I was doing with the woman this morning, which is we haven't been taught how to articulate our value in terms of the things that we love doing that we're best suited to do. So instead, we just articulate our value in terms of all the things we can do, right? So we get positioned to do anything and everything. And we tend to say yes to anything and everything. And that, that um, you know, with the women I work with, we talk a lot about Wonder Women. Mm -hmm. It's the belief that in order to have value, I have to be everything to everyone at all times. And because at least the women I work with are exceptional women, they can do so much stuff. They're so good. So anytime somebody needs something, the Wonder Woman complex says, I, I should do it. I can do it. I like, mm -hmm. and, and I need to show them that I can do it so that I can prove that I have value. So again, we're constantly raising our hands, but when we learn to talk about what we love doing that we are best suited to do, then at least we're raising our hands just for the things that we, that bring us a joy and that we're excellent at accomplishing that massively reduces the resentment we were just talking about. It massively reduces burnout. Mm -hmm. Juliet, can I ask you a question? Yes, of course. I know you're supposed to be asking me questions, but no, that's, what is one house <laughs> tour that you, what's one house tour that you absolutely hate? And if mm. you're listening, think of the, your answer to this question. Yeah. What do you mean by health chore? Just things that house, we need to, that we do for chore. our... No, no, house. Do for, like I a house chore. Oh, house chore. I, I hate oh. doing laundry. Like with a passion, I hate doing laundry. Okay. What's one thing you hate doing? I think I hate um, mopping the floors. <laughs> mopping the floors. Okay. Yeah. Are you decent at mopping the floors? Yeah, I think when I do it, I'm great at it, but I just generally really rarely do it. <laughs> right. So you said, when I do it, I'm great at it. And luckily for you, you do it rarely because you set that limit. I don't like doing this. So I'm not going to do it. But imagine if you had to walk in every single day and mop the floors at work. And every time you mop the floors, people are like, oh my goodness, Julia, the floors, they're impeccable. I could eat off of them. This is fantastic. The place feels so clean. It feels so peaceful. There's, it's such, it contributes in such a great way to the morale and to the efficiency and the productivity of our team. Can you mop the floors tomorrow? How about the day after, right? I think as women, a lot of times we spend our time mopping floors and we don't say, I know I'm awesome at mopping the floors, but I hate mopping the floors. If we're talking about chores, can I wash dishes? I'd rather wash dishes. Can I vacuum? I like vacuuming. Mm -hmm. That's a very effective method of seeing everything you clean up, but whatever it is, right? So when we get really good at articulating what we're good at and love doing instead of just articulating all the things we're good at, then suddenly we position ourselves to be much more effective, much more engaged, much happier, and going back to resentment, way less resentful in our lives, whether it's like work, your personal life, your relationship with your friends, your parents, your lover, your kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. I love this question. That's such a good analogy. Thank you so much for sharing that. So when you have these women come to you with these um, Wonder Woman complexes, as you call them, I love that. How do you coach them through that? Or how do you counsel? Do you more like coach now or counsel? Or do you kind of combine the two? Like, how does it look like when people work with you? I coach. Um, I'm actually closing my, my therapy practice, which is a good thing. That's a, that has been a milestone, uh, which doesn't mean I don't use the psychology background, right? None of us can of take course. all our knowledge and put it in a silo and shove it aside. Um, so it's coaching. So a lot of it is helping them understand how that's worked for them before, how it doesn't work for them anymore, how to take the best aspects of that, right? The 
the willingness to show up, the willingness to work hard, the, the standards of excellence that they have, and really own those to work for them instead of just working for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so learning how to focus on the things that you really love, but also one of the big things that might feel more like counseling is teaching people how to sit with distress, mm-hmm. right? Sit and, and not show up in the ways that are so habitual, that are comfortable, even though they're not good for you. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of learning to just sit there and go, I'm anxious. Okay, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Like something bad isn't happening just because I feel anxiety, right? Intellectually, I know this isn't working for me. So mm-hmm. what would work? How do I take this and make it better? That is a lot of the work we do, looking at their careers and practices. But even honestly, even though we're working on careers, how people show up in their personal lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So the reason of how I got to, uh, you know, like be very curious about you and your work was an email um, that, that I received from you. And you were talking about the art of not doing anything and how you were in this rut of like always going and always doing, and then you realized you had to stop. Um, tell us a little bit more about what that was like and how you got to test out this, this new technique or this technique for you. This process. Yeah. yeah. So as I mentioned, I started, and this is really the whole story. So if it's too long, you interrupt me and stop me. But as I mentioned, I started my career as a clinical psychologist. And I'd wanted to be a psychologist since I was, I don't know, I think I first thought of it at 14 or 15. So it's all I worked towards. And in about seven years into my career, I didn't want to do this for my whole life. And at that time, it's nearly a decade ago at this point. Um, Except that I never thought of anything else. So that was very panicking. And if anybody's going through that, that's totally normal. It's crazy to think that you know what you want to be for your whole life when you're 20. And you have no real experience in the workforce. And it's crazy to think that you'd want to do the same thing your whole life when you evolve as a human being. But um, I knew that I didn't want to do this. I knew that it made me really anxious because I had no idea what else to do. Plus, I'd worked really, really hard to get a PhD. So it seems like a, a betrayal of that Like a waste and almost. A waste yeah. of time yeah. to do something. But very rapidly, I figured I thought I wanted to do some kind of coaching. It was a natural transition. Um, so I started like reactively building a coaching business. And at the time I had a, I had two sons under the age of five. And so there were days when I went in and I did therapy and I did therapy all day long. I'd see back to back clients for eight, eight or nine hours. And then the days I wasn't doing therapy were days I was taking care of my youngest son. I didn't have childcare help with the, uh, on those days. So I take care of my youngest son. And the second he was in bed, for a nap or anything else, or the second I could keep him entertained, he's under one at this point, I would then go work on my business. And I would work crazy hours and I was exhausted. And I knew mentally I needed to slow down, but I had no idea how to do it um, because there was so much pressure to get everything done. There's so much pressure in our 30 to like, we feel like it's the make or break decade for our careers and it's not but it feels like that's a developmental normal stage for your 30s and um I hired a friend of mine to help me slow down she was a yogi and she did all kinds of meditation and I have a little bit of ADD I have a monkey brain it never shuts up ever uh so I hired my friend to walk me through I think five or six different meditation practices none of which worked for me. Uh, They frustrated me. They made me mad. They made me feel very incompetent. I knew technically meditation could work, but I couldn't find it. And so I gave up on meditation at one point. I said, what I'm going to do for myself as a true European, 50% Italian blood, French culturally, is I'm going to take my afternoon espresso And I'm going to sit, I'm lucky living in in Southern California, I'm going to sit on my back porch and I'm going to take five minutes to drink my espresso between putting my baby to bed and starting to work on the coaching business. And it was a commitment I made to myself. I'm like, you can take five minutes. But taking those five minutes was excruciatingly 
difficult initially, right? I would sit and I would think I should be doing this. I should be doing that. And I wanted to take my phone. I wanted to listen to some music. I wanted to take notes and I would force myself to do that. And what I found is if I could get past the initial anxiety of not being productive, right? The cult of busyness mm-hmm. that I would experience initially, if you try this for only five minutes, you'll experience about 10 seconds of bliss where you just let go and everything just feels good. And then the second you realize you've done it, you're like, good, check mark, let's go back to work, right? Mm-hmm. I actually do this a lot with my patients and with my clients. And I tell you, I have the clock and it's five minutes and about three and a half minutes in, you can watch them settle for about 10 to 15 seconds. And then you can see them getting antsy again. And the more I practiced what I called the art of nothing, right? This idea of doing absolutely nothing, the, the better I was. So by practicing slowing down and taking initially periods of two to five minutes and now on a weekend, no joke, it could be an hour and a half staring outside into space. Where I do nothing, I found that not only was I calmer, but the best ideas came from my business. I am a social introvert. I love people, but my brain gets really taxed by social interactions, even in 2D like this. So I showed up better for my family and for my people because I would create this space. Um, And for anybody who's struggling with like, what's coming next, right? What should I do? I don't know what I like. I don't know what I don't like. I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. All that time gave my brain room to come up with insights about what was important to me. Thus was born the art of nothing and a practice that I then started teaching to my therapy patients, again, who were suffering from anxiety disorders, stress and burnout. But I continue to practice. I taught it. And then now I teach it to my coaching clients too. So powerful. And for those that are listening right now and think, yeah, but then I don't get to do all the things and I'm less productive than I should be because I have all these 5 million things still going on. What would you tell them? A couple things. I would beg you to drop the myth of productivity. I hate the concept of productivity because productivity, it's so anti-European. So this, <laughs> tap into your inner European person for a second. This myth of productivity is so anti-European. Because there's nothing about laissez-faire or farniente. I don't know. In Germany, is there an equivalent to farniente or laissez-faire? You know, well, I am just thinking it's for me, it's really interesting that you say European because I feel like, you know, I'm German and I feel like it's been hammered into me to be disciplined and structured and productive. And so I would say, you know, what, what you're tell us you know talking about is really the french way or the italian way and i've obviously experienced it so i can totally relate <laughs> and i've definitely adapted that a little bit while i was living there and also today um, but i think maybe for germans for example i would say they they might not you know connect maybe. with the concept as as much if you I call if you call the, it the european the, concept <laughs> the swedes and the danes are very much like that too i can't speak yeah. for norwegian but the swedes are very much have that sense of like like let's let's just slow down. My best friend was Swedish growing up and I used to go mm. spend some time in Sweden and right, like this and, and the Danish people I know it's like let's just slow down just a little bit like right but the problem with productivity is productivity productivity is about how can I mash as many things into a single day. Mm. And usually when we do that, it's not about how do I do things I love. It's like how do I just get stuff done? And mm. I am a fan of effectiveness or efficiency. The first thing I would say is embrace the notion of effectiveness or efficiency. So that's about mindfully and intentionally deciding what do I want to get done, what needs to get done today, and trying to do it as well as possible in the least amount of time, right? So you set your standard for what level of excellence you need to achieve in any one of these tasks that you have, and then you do it as well as possible in the least amount of time, which is supposed to free you to do the things you want to do, right? The other thing, and I tell people, is you can start really small. So five minutes was excruciatingly difficult for me, but you have to really be realistic for a second. There's no way five minutes is going to put you off track for your day. No way. Yeah. And I love to tell my kids this, right? They're a product, they're, 
they're what uh, Gen Z and alpha generation, right? So they're like all about being plugged in all the time. And I like to remind them, like, you know, I don't think Da Vinci would have come up with as many cool things or Einstein or any of them if their space, their mental space had been so clogged up all the time. So the other thing is there are a lot of great things that happen when you free your brain to slow down. That's why for many of us, our best ideas are, oh, I needed to do this thing. Where we remember, they come when we're in the shower, right? Because for most of us, for now, thank goodness, we're not plugged in. in you cannot showers. take the phone in the showers. Yeah. That's going to change. Sadly, I know it's going to change, but for now. So five minutes is not going to put you off track for your day. Over time, once you get over the initial anxiety, it should take about a month for that to happen. You'll find that in those five minutes, you come up with the most creative, most excellent ideas, which will help you be more productive, more effective, more impactful in your life. But the other thing is when I teach this, I tell people, listen, you can start small. So, and usually when I teach this in a room, this makes everybody laugh. And if you're listening to this and you laugh, it's because it's you. How about just monotasking when you go to the bathroom? How about you start with a moment of, you practice the art of nothing by leaving your phone on your desk, on your table, on your kitchen counter, when you go to the bathroom. And leave those 30 seconds to 15 minutes where you just like leave room for your brain. Or how about the next time you have to heat something in a microwave for those two minutes instead of picking up your phone, you just stare out the window or look at your feet. And it's going to feel really uncomfortable initially. But after a while, your brain is going to go, oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness you gave me a second to breathe. Mm -hmm. Right. So start really small. And I have never to date met somebody I've taught this to who's come back and not said, this is a game changer. And it's so simple. Like you don't need to pay anybody to teach you this. Like two to five minutes every single day, preferably multiple times a day where you're not plugged in and you just let your brain practice being bored, but it's not boring. Mm -hmm. I yeah I I'm laughing to myself because that was actually the the second thought I had when we were talking about the shower was like I, in my head I was like yeah who goes to the bathroom without without their phones nowadays and that's so crazy too because you know we are still in the generation where when we grew up we didn't have a phone and mm -hmm. I I was literally thinking while you were were talking I was like I wonder what I was doing when I was younger <laughs> and I didn't have a phone that I could take to the bathroom with me you know it's just so crazy it's just such a weird habit and then um, I really love what you were saying as well about I love you know that you're making a really important point around meditation versus just the art of nothing because I can totally relate as well with with regards to meditation I'm also yogi and uh I know the power of meditation and how, you know, and I've tried it multiple, many times and I actually do meditate nowadays, but I do only guided meditations, never just, you know, by myself. I usually always listen to something. Um, but I, when I actually started this business, I always said, you know, you don't have to meditate to reduce stress. It, it helps and it's great if you can, but if it makes you super uncomfortable, don't don't force yourself, like find something else that helps you reduce stress and anxiety, because there's a million other tools out there that can be just as effective or maybe even more effective because there's a lot of research actually that says that people that start with meditation or even like longer people that are, have been practicing meditation for a longer period of time, they actually create more stress and anxiety while they sit in meditation than if they don't because they feel so uncomfortable doing it in the first place. Um, so I love the idea of just doing it for five minutes. And yeah, I, I actually thought what I would probably do if I have five minutes is step outside. I think for me, that's yeah. the, the best way to, uh, to disconnect. I feel like even when I'm like having an espresso and just sitting on my back porch, I think would still make me want to grab my phone. And when I walk and when I move my body um, in nature, then that's, yeah. that's the most powerful way for me. I, I completely agree. So one of the things, and again, I'm pretty fortunate. I'm in Southern California. The mm -hmm. weather's great. It's easy to step outside. Minnesota in the middle of the winter, maybe not so easy. But you know, when we're thinking about, again, the whole point of the art of nothing was 
to teach myself first and foremost. I was the first guinea mm. pig. How to slow down because I felt this, this pressure to always be on was, was miserable, right? Mm. But at the same time, I was miserable when I wasn't pushing myself, right? So you're caught in a bind. So the, the first thing to know is initially it's going to feel really uncomfortable. But that is great because what you're doing, because we're talking about two to five minute stints, is just practicing distress tolerance. Distress mm -hmm. tolerance is really important. Most of us, most of us don't, don't tolerate distress very well. Our computers load a little slowly on my TV, like my smart TVs, like the internet doesn't always connect properly, right? There's all this frustration, but to just be able to go, like, it's okay, like nothing catastrophic is happening becomes really important. But again, eventually, it's like any other skill. It's an endurance, it's mental endurance. Mm -hmm. And the idea is not that the longer you wait, the more excruciating it becomes. It's actually the opposite. Once you've taught your brain to not feel compelled to always be stimulated in the, in the ways that they are now, once you've taught yourself that it's okay to just stop and slow down and breathe, that distress completely disappears. And what studies have shown is that when we are better about giving ourselves breaks, we actually perform better. So you wanna think about your brain nearly as, um, you wanna think of your brain as a computer battery, right? So when I'm on my laptop and the battery starts to die, my laptop gets really, really slow. Yeah, I still have juice, it's not completely dead, but even by the time it's at 30%, like the processing power, everything slows down. So your brain is the same way. By simply charging, by unplugging, you literally charge your brain and then you can come back and be much more effective. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm not joking, like again, I went from five minutes to on weekend mornings, one of the things I do is I get up and I grab a cup of coffee and I go sit in my backyard. And usually my husband will come after an hour or something and say, hey, we're making breakfast or you wanna have breakfast with us? Because if it were up to me, I like, I just like, those are my great ideas. It, mm -hmm. It's such a pleasant moment in time. Mm -hmm. And you don't take a notepad or something? Don't you feel like you have too many ideas and you're like afraid you're gonna forget about them? Not generally, not at this point. If if something really came up, and, and again, remember I started off saying I'm kind of ADD. So I'm definitely the type of person um, who like I'll have a great idea and if I don't write it down, 50 <laughs> minutes later, I'm like, wait, I had a great idea. What was that great idea? It was such a mm. good idea. Um, but I find that in general, those things will come back every once in a while. If my purpose is to disconnect and to do that, I'll do it. But the purpose in those moments isn't that. So those ideas, mm -hmm. they'll generally come in, they'll percolate, they'll pop back up later on. Mm -hmm. It really is as somebody who, as I said, if you were to look at my calendar right now, it is crazy. I'm in back to back to back to back face-to-face -face meetings every single day. Um, and I love it. My business is doing well. I'm not going to complain about that. It took a lot mm -hmm. of work to get here. But I'm also an introvert. So it's exhausting to me mentally. Um, and I can feel it, right? Like last week, I was so happy when Friday hit. So I don't want to use this as another work time. Right. It is it is me time. And for me, it is a fine way of spending like if at the end of my life, I don't think I'll regret sitting around staring at the space, looking at nature, letting my mind wander. I don't think any philosophers would we wouldn't have great philosophers without that space to think. Mm -hmm. um, and then plenty productive the rest of the time. I don't need to compensate for that in those days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love all of that. Um, I'm an introvert as well. I was actually just thinking, I uh, we had Friendsgiving last night with my friends and we spent all day together. We like went for a mountain bike ride in like early, <clears throat> later later morning. And then we like, like spent the whole day together and cooked and then like had Friendsgiving in the evening. And at 8 p.m., I can tell, 
I like just start to check out because I'm like, I have no energy, like no social energy left in me to connect and to listen. And there were 19 of us. So it's also really loud in the background and I'm a highly sensitive person to noise. So when there's just a lot of things going on and my energy is starting to decrease, I'm just like exhausted. And so I said goodbye to my friends and they were like, are you leaving already? And I'm like, my social, <laughs> my social uh, energy levels are completely depleted and I need a few hours by myself to just re restock and recharge and everyone understands, everyone knows. And um, yeah, I think it's really powerful when you know that about yourself and you just give yourself that grace and it's totally okay. It's not, it's like, I love that time. It's not like I, yeah, I love how you said you're not going to look back <laughs> at the end of your life and regret just sitting outside and, you know, enjoying your espresso or like just enjoying the art of nothing. I love that. Um, I have two more questions, but yeah. I was just going to say, you know, you mentioned earlier, for you, it's easier if you're doing something like walking. And again, if you're looking at research, right, if anybody's listening to this who's in leadership, who runs meetings a lot, you're building your business, you're just a human being, just try to live better. Like, mm -hmm. First of all, walking out in nature is very helpful. Right? So if you need to be walking like in motion in order to give yourself a break, then be in motion. If if you're on meetings all the time, I can't because of the nature of the conversations I have, but you can do walking meetings. When we're back to more in-person meetings, instead of having coffee in a coffee shop, very often I'll invite people to take a walk. And as an introvert, it's fantastic because you don't need to make direct eye contact. So you can have great conversations, but the lulls in the conversation are better. But if you're just doing your equivalent of my you know, afternoon espresso, The nice thing with nature is you're standing out and there are like all these things to look at. There are bees and in my yard hummingbirds right now. And there's the sound of things going in the background and there are people. We know that a lot of noise is bad, right? We know that levels of anxiety and stress are higher in cities, around airports, around places where you have constant noise. So we're constant, when I think of noise, I don't just think about auditory noise. I think about visual and digital noise. And our brains are not designed, think about the evolution of mankind. We are not designed to function in the situation where we're constantly stimulated, right? So there's a reason all of us kind of are drawn to this idea of sitting around the campfire. And when people are around the campfire, they start getting quiet, right? It's just mesmerizing, just slowing mm -hmm. down. So whatever you, the listener, need to do to give yourself permission and grace to tolerate being with yourself, right? That's another piece it's about being mm -hmm. okay with being with yourself. It's not having to show up for other people or have other people create noise in your world to feel okay. Like whatever that is, do it. If it's just 30 seconds of art of nothing, then start at 30 seconds. If it's taking a walk, Julia, like you said, instead of sitting on your back, you know, balcony, then take a walk. If you can be barefoot taking a walk, it's even better because we don't understand yeah. how grounding works, but we know that walking barefoot for at least 10 minutes on a natural surface and concrete is a natural surface, um, uh, people's dopamine and serotonin levels go up. And we don't understand it, but we know biologically when you look at brain functions, it's different than walking with shoes in a natural surface or just walking outside or walking barefoot on non-natural surfaces. Mm. Yeah. Okay, question number one. Uh, and I feel like we could go on forever. Um, this is really interesting. Um, you were saying at the beginning that your thoughts never stop, like you never stop thinking. Um, any <laughs> recommendations for people that feel the same way? Have you been able to manage that better? With like I, the art of I'm, nothing? I'm not upset by it. So whereas before the thoughts might've been a lot of chatter about a lot of things that were stressful, And, and so in trying to practice the art of nothing or meditation, I got really annoyed that my brain would never shut up. Now I accept like my brain's just always thinking, I don't need to silence it. I don't need to quiet it. Part of the thoughts are like, oftentimes there are multiple levels of thoughts at any given time. Mm -hmm. I, when you let go of trying to control things, oftentimes things are easier to deal with. So I have no trick to have less thoughts. I hear that meditation when practiced properly can help you with that. You know, 
you know, more power to you if, if that is something that works. And again, meditation is fantastic. And we know that the studies on meditation show the benefit of it. But if you don't have patience for that, I think it's just when they talk about mindfulness, right? And putting your thoughts on leaves and letting them flow. It's this idea of just realizing like, that's just it's like background noise. It's like wind, mm-hmm. right? It's just background noise. Yeah. And so I'm actually really curious to talk to you as well, because I think a lot of people are maybe not 100% clear on the difference between coaching and counseling or therapy. And now since you've been, since you are and have been doing both, can you explain what for you the difference is or even for your clients when you work with them? Yeah. Yeah. So the way I used to explain it is that people seek therapy usually when something has happened in their life that might be something chronic or might be acute, right? It might be a single event that just happens, like losing your job or somebody dying or, or a breakup or chronic, right? It's just like lifelong stuff adds up. And they feel like they're functioning below their baseline level, mm-hmm. right? That is modern therapy. That is the way modern therapy looks. So modern therapy is normally I'm fine. Something's going on. I'm not fine. I am anxious, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling super scattered, I'm functioning below my baseline. And the work in therapy is designed first and foremost to get somebody back to their baseline. And usually the tail end of therapy is to get somebody functioning slightly above baseline, right? Mm -hmm. So very often, long-term therapy ends with some kind of coaching, Mm -hmm. right? Now, There's also old, good old fashioned existential therapy, which we don't like that is not covered by your insurance company. And that's a fun one. I, I still do that sometimes, which is more like, what's the meaning of life? What's my purpose in life? Right? Like that self-exploration. Mm-hmm. But it's very um, either uh, like addressing a problem from a very deep level or thinking about things at a very deep level. Coaching is about saying, listen, I'm functioning. I'm okay overall but I want to be way up here. Like I want to, I want growth and I want, and I want growth rapidly. Therapy can be, it can take years to work through stuff. And so coaching is very much focused on taking action and moving towards specific goals. In the context of coaching, just like in the context of therapy, you might have some blending. So very often in the context of coaching, I'm working on mindset. I'm working on confidence issues. I'm working on good old fashioned mommy and daddy issues that are creeping in, right? To how we operate as adults. But it's more of like shedding a light on it and saying, okay, so that's there. Just so you know, that's there. You're going to need to work through that. And here's what we do. And we move towards the goals. And if there's really a big issue, like I see somebody whose anxiety is crippling, I might stop coaching altogether. Or I might say, you need to go see a therapist and work on your anxiety because it's mm. keeping you from doing the things we need to do in coaching. But mm. coaching is very much about moving towards a specific goal. The, the relationships are very different. Oftentimes, if coaching is long, long term, then you're seeing somebody once a month or every two or three months for years, sometimes, for people who like to have that coach to keep them as an accountability partner. Yeah. I always wonder why therapists don't do that. Is wouldn't it be easier to just be like, okay, I'm talking to a therapist and then we set a goal at the end. So I am actually making progress also by myself. The role of the, okay. So that's a really good question. because I guess that brings another distinction. The way I, I have an article I wrote way, 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 way back in the first version of my coaching practice when I was still doing life coaching, where I describe it like this. Imagine you're walking through a maze. The, A consultant's job is to be in a helicopter above the maze and to say, hey, the maze looks exactly like this. We think you uh, need to go straight, make a left, make a right, make a right. Here's your map out of the maze. Here you go. Go ahead and do it. A coach's job is to be like on a turret kind of above the maze and look at the person and go, I can see part of the maze. I can't see all of it. But you're saying you want to exit Like, how quickly do you want to exit? What kind of a road do you want to take to exit? Okay, well, based on that, and the coach will start giving advice as to the steps you need to take and the process you need to take. The therapist is with you in the maze, and the therapist is sitting there and going, mm-hmm. how do you feel about this path? 
<laughs> what would it be like to walk through this path? You know, what does this path evoke? Well, do you want to walk down the path? Well, well, sure, we can walk down the path and see where it goes. But we're taught as therapists to not be, I don't give as much advice as a therapist. I don't give as much direction. Um, oftentimes the people you're working with are a little bit more, for one reason or another, just like fragile. That's not a bad thing. Just like literally they're like, I've experienced panic attacks in the past. Like when I was experiencing panic attacks, I'm far more fragile and less able to take action than when I'm feeling confident and I'm not experiencing anxiety, right? And so the way it's harder to push people and coach's job is to push you. It's like, come on, you said you wanted to get out of this maze. Let's go. You have three paths. It looks like you could take all three. They'll lead you here. This one might be the better path. That would be my recommendation. But what do you think? What do you want to do? What's your goal? There's a lot more pushing as a coach. Mm-hmm. We're not, at least in America, we're not trained to do that as therapists. And actually I have friends who see therapists in France, at least. And in France, therapy is still very, psychoanalytical very Freudian so they even say like they literally have the couch seated the therapist taking notes doesn't say anything Mm -hmm. right so Mm -hmm. is that why you uh, why you shifted to coaching because it makes you makes you feel more fulfilled to actually push and like advice yeah yeah my have you ever done Simon Sinek's what is your why or it starts with why like finding your why Mm -hmm. Uh, Simon Sinek talks about like identifying what, what your driving force is, what your driving prerogative is in life. Right? So I did the work, which is always fun, right? There are all these things you do with people, but you don't do them on yourself until somebody else. Like most coaches have coaches, many therapists have therapists, right? And, uh, and when I look at my why, like the thing that drives me is to help people take ownership of their actions so they can live life with a minimum number of regrets. And as a therapist, that's what I did. As a coach, that's what I did. As a consultant, that's what I try to do. And so this idea, like for me, it's very fulfilling to watch people take action and to support them in taking the actions they need to take. Mm-hmm. And it's a much more direct route to do that as a coach than it is as a therapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for, for explaining that. I think it's um, really powerful to know that distinction and to decide you know, where you are at and what you need in order to make a a clear decision on what you actually need in the moment. Is it a coach, a therapist, consultant, and so on? Um, I I would add just one last thing. Yeah. Anybody and their mom can become a coach. Mm -hmm. I know this. That's part of the reason why I struggled so much with becoming a coach. Literally, it's unregulated. Thank goodness, please don't regulate it because the practice of therapy in America is so regulated. Mm -hmm. That also means that most people who are coaching don't have the training to be able to deal with the kinds of issues that people are walking into a therapy room with. And that's fine, right? That's not what they're supposed to be doing. So also the training is vastly different. Yeah. Do you feel like you oftentimes have clients that kind of mirror and reflect back the issues that you have in your own life? Yes. (laughs) We all, we all, everybody, like even in there, even as a therapist, if you know a therapist or you're seeing a therapist, trust me, They're, they became a therapist because they're trying to fix the Figure stuff that they grew out. up with. <laughs> and most coaches work on problems that they, that they faced, right? And then they yeah. get better and better at doing it. So absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, th- I find it always really fascinating that like these clients come into my life and I'm like, there it is again. <laughs> yep. There's this thing that I need to look at as well. So yeah, it's, it's really powerful. Um, do you have a book that really changed the way how you thought about things or that you've been reading over and over again because you find it so powerful and relatable um I read a lot so I never I rarely read books over and over again uh there Mm. but I knew you were going to ask that question so I had to think about it uh in a great book about habits is Charles Duhigg the power of habits it is really a good book Mm. um And Duhigg writes in a way that's not boring. I think a lot of people write, especially on issues like habit, can be super boring. This is not super mm-hmm. boring. It's really interesting. I've bought it. I recommend it. If you're stuck in a rut and you're trying to understand, it's more about the science and the background, but you get like some process. So that's a great one. The book that did it for me, oh, I know. I was going to give you another one, but I'll give you this one. Since we talked about introversion, I really think Susan's Kane book, Quiet, 
is a must read for any introvert out there. And if you're an extrovert, it's a great read too, to understand that, you know, the world is built around like how you function, but that's relatively new started in the 1920s with the advent of marketing and advertising, like as industries. Um, And that's the book that helped me realize I was an introvert because I am super social and I love meeting people and talking to new people. I never realized I was an introvert until I read that book. And I'm like, Oh, that explains so much. Hmm. So Susan Cain, Susan Cain's book, Quiet, The Secret Power of Introverts, I think is the sub, is a subtitle, is a amazing book. Definitely worth reading. Good as an audiobook too. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much. Those are very interesting ones. The quiet one I haven't heard about, so I'll definitely check that one out. Alessandra, that was, wow, such a powerful interview. Thank you so much for all of these amazing insights. Um, I've learned so much in this conversation, so really, really appreciate it. How can people best contact you or connect with you if they are curious to learn more about your work? Okay, there are two places. So one is LinkedIn. I, uh, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is a great place. And I'm under Dr. Alessandra, one L, two S's wall. Uh, there might even be, I think it's just Dr. Alessandra wall. And then the other one is my website, and it's um, noteworthyinc.co. Great. .com.co. .co. All right, cool. We'll link all of these in the show notes as well so people have them easily accessible. And with that said, thank you so much for all of the insights that you shared and for challenging us to practice the art of nothing i will definitely think of these words um, this week as well and try and see how how uncomfortable it makes me feel to do anything at all and um, i wish you all the best for your coaching practice and i hope that we might have you on the podcast again in the future to talk about any other really fascinating topics i would love that have a wonderful rest of the year and a happy holiday. thank you